Thank you. It's really nice to be here with you this evening. Uh, I haven't been here for a while. Uh, I think last time I talked, used to speak from over there. Is that is that right? Okay. Uh, and every time I come, things are a little more developed. I see some old faces and some new faces. It's really nice to see. Uh, it's just wonderful to see a community, a meditation community, uh, just unfolding in a very natural way. Uh, you're really lucky to, to have this place uh, and to have each other and uh, uh, to have Gil as a as a teacher. Uh, we're Dharma brothers. We're both uh, uh, disciples of uh, Sojin Mel Weitzman in a kind of formal sense. And then, of course, we have other, so many other things that uh, bring Dharma into our lives. Uh, we're also both parents, uh, which is a whole other practice in itself. I thought I would speak today of uh, about a, a text that I've been working with and uh, thinking about for a long time. Uh, it's called. It's a text from Dogen Zenji. Uh, do you know about him at all? Uh, Dogen was a uh, 13th century uh, Zen master who brought. Uh, Soto Zen, sort of our school of Zen, from China to Japan. And he was a pretty remarkable spirit. Uh, When he was a boy, uh, he was sent, uh, his parents both died uh, young, and he was sent, uh, he went to a uh, monastery to to live, which was not so unusual. and he would read the the old texts and uh, see where it said uh, when the Buddha was awakened, uh, he said, "Now I am awakened with all beings." And uh, so the teaching was also that that everybody has or is Buddha nature. Everybody is already, each of us is already awake. And he went to uh, his teacher, uh, Tendai school, one of the Pure Land schools, and said, well, if we're already awake, why do we have to practice? And uh, she said, oh, that's a really good question. We think you should go practice Zen. Because <laughs> they didn't have the answer. Uh, so he practiced Zen, and he went to China in pursuit of it, and there met his true teacher. Uh, Japanese goes by the name of Rujing, uh, and brought the Chinese style of practice, uh, and his kind of his understanding and a lot of uh, Mahayana sutras and texts uh, back with him to Japan and founded some temples and a monastery. Anyhow, uh, 
in the Mahayana tradition, the kind of the example, the example of, of practice is the, the Bodhisattva. Uh, and there's a story of uh, the first Zen master who uh, sort of settled in, in America, actually settled in California. It's a man by the name of Nyogen Senzaki. And uh, he had what he called the floating zendo. Uh, wherever he lived, he set up a zendo. And he lived in hotels, mostly. And he had uh, he would have people come and do seated meditation. But he figured that Westerners were not likely to sit cross-legged, which I could see in this room is about half true. Uh, and so everybody sat in chairs. And when he began a talk, he would address them. He would say, good evening, bodhisattvas, uh, which kind of took people back. Uh, bodhisattvas, those are supposed to be exalted beings. Uh, but he was just he was acknowledging the very thing that Dogen was questioning when he went uh, when he went to his teacher. He, Nogen Satsaki was uh, acknowledging the already enlightened nature, our true nature of who we are. Uh, so bodhisattva, the word uh, can be translated as. Uh, enlightenment being uh, or enlightened being or enlightening being. Uh, There's some ambiguity there. As an enlightening being, uh, again, in the Mahayana tradition, we we take the vow, we, we have bodhisattva vows, uh, and bodhisattva precepts. And the first bodhisattva vow, uh, and we say this at the, uh, at the end of every talk, at the end of every day of retreat, uh, we recite these four vows. Be- beings are numberless. I vow to awaken with them, or I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. And the Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Uh, these are, this is kind of a high standard. Uh, especially this, that first one. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them or awaken with them. Now those beings are, uh, you know, they fill the room here right now. They also fill each of our minds. Uh, each of us has many beings. You know, in the course of the day, we go through many lives, many states of mind. Uh, we also carry with us our ancestors or and our children and the, the uh, future generations of ancestors. So... We have to know how to work with beings. Um, we need to liberate ourselves. Uh, my sense is that most Westerners, uh, 
like most of the people here in this room, some of you may have been born uh, into a Dharma family, uh, but most of us come to a meditation practice because we're at a certain point we tune in to the fact that we are suffering uh, and we sometimes we wrestle for many years to understand well how do I deal with this how do I take care of this uh, life is very hard and we can see if we look around in the world that the world is pretty hard uh, You know, some people think we're living in terrible times, which we are. But in fact, in, in, it's not really so different than it ever was. Uh, there always were wars. Uh, each person always has to deal with uh, loss in our lives uh, and ultimately our own passing. They also, each of us, has the gift of life, you know, has the opportunity to experience one's awakened nature uh, and to free oneself from uh, the suffering and anxiety that we carry around like a sort of big package rolling around in front of us like this. So a bodhisattva is a being who liberates self and others. Uh, and part of their path is to, uh, to vow to postpone their ultimate liberation until all beings are free. Uh, it's a deeply, deeply altruistic way to live. And they live like that very naturally. Uh, and rather than freeing themselves, which, which they would have the option to do because their insight is so deep, freeing themselves from the cycle of birth and death, they keep coming back for our sake uh, to help beings. There's a wonderful text that describes uh, some of what they do. Uh, in the world. During the short eons of swords, they meditate on love, introducing to nonviolence hundreds of millions of living beings. In the middle of great battles, they remain impartial to both sides, for bodhisattvas of great strength delight in reconciliation of conflict. In order to help living beings, they voluntarily descend into the hells which are attached to all the inconceivable Buddha fields. Uh, so in each Buddhist Buddha field, in each field of liberation or freedom, there's also a hell that you can fall into uh, if you cling too much, if you try to live there forever. And if you fall into this field, uh, look around because there will be a bodhisattva at hand uh, to help you 
rise from that place. So being bodhisattvas is a vast responsibility. Uh, And what are the tools that we have to fulfill it? So this essay or this fascicle that that Dogen wrote, uh, he wrote it for lay practitioners like ourselves uh, in 1243. uh, And he called it uh, the Bodhisattva's Four Embracing Dharmas. Uh, There's a good version in Kaz Tanahashi's book, Moon and the Dewdrop, uh, which is titled the Bodhisattva's uh, Four Methods of Guidance. And the text I'm working from here is one that I've been working on with uh, Zen priest Shohaku Okamura uh, translating. And very succinctly, it lays out techniques of skillful means and techniques of engagement and techniques of liberation. I like the name for embracing dharmas because uh, there's something about the image of an embrace. Uh, When you embrace another, when we embrace each other, uh, we're taking two and making it into one. One being one life encircling each other. Uh, so there's something really rich about the word. The other thing about this text, which is unusual for Dogen, because uh, usually he's talking about meditation uh, quite single-mindedly, is that this is his most social teaching. Uh, and in it, it discusses uh, both literally and metaphorically language about relations between nations, between rulers and subjects within families. His own formulation actually has roots in the Pali tradition, uh, where it was uh, known as the four, the Sangaha, Sangaha Vatu, the foundations of, uh, for social unity. So, what are these four methods? I'd like to talk about them a little while and leave, hopefully leave time for some discussion. Uh, the four embracing dharmas are offering or giving, dana, which you've talked about a lot, right? There's been discussion of, of dana. Uh, kind speech, beneficial action, and identity action. So giving takes several forms. It takes the form of not being greedy, It takes the form of material help or material support. Uh, It takes the form of just giving the teachings, giving the Dharma uh, to another. And it takes the form of fearlessness. So to quote from, from this text, Giving or offering means not being greedy. Not to be greedy means not to covet. Not to covet commonly means not to flatter. Even if we rule the four continents, in order to offer teachings of the true way, we must simply and unfailingly not be greedy. 
It's like offering treasures we are about to discard to those we do not know. We give flowers blooming on distant mountains to the Tathagata, to the Buddha, and offer treasures accumulated in past lives to living beings. We offer ourselves to ourselves, and we offer others to others. This is what we do in meditation, and we sit again and again. We're offering ourself to ourself. Uh, you know, we we accept it, and then it kind of it kind of slips away, and then we renew that again and again, offering ourselves to ourselves. And by sitting together in this room, uh, sitting together in community, we're also offering others to others. We create a kind of zone of peace, you know, a Buddha field in which each of us can offer ourselves to ourselves and where we can kindly accept that. When we offer a word, he says, even if we offer just one word or a verse of Dharma, it will become a seed of goodness in this lifetime and other lives to come. Even if we give something humble, a penny or a stalk of grass, it will plant a root of goodness in this and other ages. Dharma can be a material treasure, and a material treasure can be Dharma. This depends entirely upon the giver's vow and wish. So the spirit with which we do this is important. When you give a gift, there's a wonderful book, I don't know if any of you know it, by uh, uh, a scholar named Lewis Hyde. It's, it's called The Gift, actually. Uh, and it's... Let me read you something from it, if I can find it. It's one of my favorite books. Uh, Here's a gift. On a simple level, material goods are just given. On a higher level, teaching is shared. On the highest level, there's just connection. On the highest level of giving. The endless society of being. Uh, so in Lewis Hyde's book, he describes dinner in a cheap restaurant in the south of France. The patrons sit at a long communal table and each finds before his plate a modest bottle of wine. Before the meal begins, a man will pour his wine not into his own glass, but into his neighbor's. And his neighbor will return the gesture, filling the man's empty glass. In an economic sense, nothing has happened. Uh, No one has more wine than than he did to begin with. You know, you could economically or energetically you know be the same thing if you poured your own wine then he says but society has appeared where there was none before in another place Hyde writes 
again about the gift, about giving, about dana. I'd like to speak of gratitude as a labor undertaken by the soul to affect the transformation after a gift has been received. Between the time a gift comes to us and the time we pass it along, we suffer gratitude. Passing the gift along is the act of gratitude that finishes the labor. The transformation is not accomplished until we have the power to give the gift on our own terms. So this is this is really bodhisattva action. That um, if someone gives us a gift and we hold on to it, it's no longer a gift. It no longer has a life. It, it immediately, as we accept it, you know, it's wonderful and it makes us feel really good. But if we hold on to it, it's dead. If we pass it along to someone else, then that gift still has life. And the same thing is true. This is true of the teachings. This is, you know, this is the practice. We have to accept it. We have to receive it from someone, from one another, from a teacher, from our children, from our parents. And then we, we keep it in circulation. So this gift is always in circulation. This is why uh, Japanese are very big in uh, Japanese calligraphy. The, this key thing is the enso, the circle. Uh, we keep things circulating. So that's what a bodhisattva does. That's that's the bodhisattva practice of of dana. out of order here. Okay. So the second the second embracing dharma is uh, loving speech, kind speech. Uh, that means telling the truth in a way that leads to right action. Uh, it also means just speaking very gently. Uh, what Dogen writes is, loving speech means, first of all, to arouse compassionate mind when meeting with living beings and to offer caring and loving words. In general, we should not use any violent or harmful words. In society, there is a courtesy of asking others if they are well. In the Buddha way, we have the words, please treasure yourself. And we have a duty to ask our teachers, how are you? To speak with a mind that compassionately cares for living beings as if they were own, they were our own babies is loving speech. So loving speech includes this wonderful line, we should praise those with virtue and we should pity those without virtue, which means we should speak to them the same way, we should speak to them in this spirit of complete generosity. So it goes back to giving. Giving uh, is enough. Loving speech is, is an expression of that. And he ends this section by saying, and we should study how loving speech 
has power to transform the world. And we've seen this. We've seen this, you know, we've, uh, when I was here last time, I think I spoke about Martin Luther King and spoke from his words. Uh, we've seen people, we see His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Uh, we see various other spiritual leaders whose loving words actually transform the world. And they transform the world uh, in a way that is so much more effective and thoroughgoing uh, than the language of bombs and swords, which just scar the world. But this loving speech is not so easy. If it means telling the truth, it also means that we need to consider when we feel something to be true, is it really true? Or is this just my perception, my inner reality? Uh, And also, if I perceive a truth and want to share it with somebody, uh, is it timely? And is it useful? And are they ready to hear it? This doesn't mean necessarily you have to be sweet or soft-spoken. There's times when you have to shout. But loving speech means using words in a way at a time when one senses that they can actually reach another being. The third factor is beneficial action which includes helping and listening. Uh, It includes the meditation that we do is beneficial action. Uh, It harmonizes ourselves and harmonizes the whole world. Again, it's another form of giving. Uh, Beneficial action in a bodhisattva way. uh, I don't know if if you've seen statues of thousand-armed uh, Guanyin, uh, Guanyin or Avalokiteshvara is a bodhisattva of compassion, and she's depicted in a number of ways, often as a woman, uh, and often with this kind of um, great circle of hands and eyes. Uh, and there's a wonderful Zen koan uh, which says. What does the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara do with all her hands and eyes? And a student asks his teacher, and the teacher responds, it's like reaching around for a pillow in the middle of the night. So she just uses these hands and eyes in a natural uh, way to put herself at ease. In the middle of the night, when we adjust our pillow, uh, we do it so freely and naturally. It's just something we, we give to ourselves. And it may be one of those rare moments for some of us when we don't think, you know, gee, do I deserve this? You know, <laughs> do I deserve to be comfortable? Uh, you know, you, you just do it. And that's the spirit with which uh, the bodhisattva acts, with which they do beneficial action. Uh, without any calculation, 
or any contrivance, just acting. The other way that this figure is depicted sometimes, which is which is very cool, is uh, each one of these hands has a tool. Uh, and if you look at, you see the statues, it's really amazing. They're, you know, they're, each tool is different. And each tool is, you know, exactly what's needed to take care of some situation in life. You know, it's like, it's like, the world's biggest Swiss army knife. You know? uh, or the universe's Swiss army knife. So these are the tools of a bodhisattva uh, that she uses to benefit others. Uh, Dogen writes, we should equally benefit friends and foes alike. We should benefit self and others alike. So this is very much, uh, it's a difficult practice to, to benefit foes and friends alike. Uh, some of us have been wrestling with uh, the various uh, people that we feel ourselves indifference with, sometimes in our family, uh, sometimes our nation's leaders, sometimes the leaders of other nations. Uh, but this admonition is to to benefit each of them without discerning about whether they're a friend or an enemy because, in fact, each of them is a sentient being. Each of them is a Buddha. And if you see them, if we, and you have to cultivate this. I have, I have to cultivate this pretty intensely to uh, work on Donald Rumsfeld uh, for myself. You know, for himself, he might be right there. I don't know him, you know, but it's uh, it's not so easy. But that part takes the cultivation. So, but it's 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 also like Jesus um, advises, uh, and he's quoted in the Gospel of, of Matthew, uh, where he tells his followers to love their enemies. This is a very difficult bodhisattva practice. And finally, the fourth factor is, uh, this is the most interesting to me, it's called identity action. Uh, and it's the way in which a bodhisattva takes whatever form is necessary to meet suffering beings and relieve them from their suffering. Uh, this is how you benefit you benefit friends and foes alike by not seeing them as foe but by identifying with them identifying with them as Buddha and by yourself coming forth as Buddha so that they will be disarmed uh, what Dogen writes is, identity action means not to be different, neither different from self nor from others. So that means don't draw a distinction between self and others. And we also don't draw a distinction even within yourself. So much of our lives, we're, we have a doubt about what's true. Uh, and we feel actually separated from ourself. 
in, in this kind of practice, we're stepping back from that again and again. We're focusing in on our breath. We're focusing on mindfulness. We're unifying ourselves. Because in everyday life, that self feels can feel scattered. And when it's scattered, we're uncomfortable. And we suffer. So identity action means, first of all, identifying with yourself. And then recognizing that everyone has this difficulty. And generating compassion so that they can identify with themselves and thereby we are identifying with them. Dogen goes on and says, when we identify, when we realize identity action, self and others are one suchness. This is what I was talking about. This is where it's the embracing dharma. Self and others in identity, when we embrace them, it's one suchness. It's one true being. When we identify thoroughly and truly with ourselves and with them, we are free. Sometimes that freedom exists just in a moment. We can never hold on to it. But I think all of us have probably tasted it. And once you've tasted it, you know that it's there. When you've tasted it, it's a gift. It's, a, it's again, goes back to dana. It's a gift that you've given yourself. It's also a gift that the Buddhas give to us. And it will happen again. Don't try too hard to go after it. Just try to bring it forth. Once you've tasted it, then you know that you have the capability and others have the capability of bringing this forth. Uh, And that there's this kind of liberation and freedom possible for all beings. So I think I'll stop there. Uh, There's, of course, more that could be said, but uh, we have a, a few minutes for questions or comments. So thank you. Back there. Yeah. How is it that we suffer gratitude? Suffer just means experience. Uh, you know, uh, it means uh, it just means to experience gratitude uh, on the worldly plane. Often. Experience suffering and experience, suffering and experience have uh, just with a subtle shift we can feel pain in that. Uh, so suffering also means enduring, and so one of the key elements to all these practices actually is patience. Uh, that you have to practice patience. Uh, you have to be very patient with yourself. Um, and then we can just move, act freely. 
other questions, comments? In Donald Rumsfeld? Well, it's interesting. When I see, when I listen to him on, uh, or see him on TV, uh, I, see a per- I see a person there. I just see a person I disagree with. But I see somebody who's very alive. You know, I see somebody who, I can see that for instance, that he takes a certain pleasure in the workings of his mind. Uh, I can see that. And there's nothing unwholesome about that. Uh, I wish that it were turned. Uh, the, difficulty comes, the difficulty comes when, when one believes one's ideas. You know, when one believes one's thoughts and then imposes them on the world. Uh, If you don't believe them, uh, if you don't take them, if you see them as impermanent, then you can just enjoy them. You can enjoy the working of your mind and you can enjoy the working of other people's minds and other people's lives. Once you start believing them and turning them into a policy, you know, and a policy that's the opposite of a policy of kindness, uh, then uh, watch out. And so when I see him also, when I see that pleasure that he takes in his ideas or in the workings of his mind, uh, I realize, oh, I do that. And I'm also capable of... uh, clinging to or possibly fighting for or arguing for my beliefs. And so the first thing is for me to take a step back and see if I identify in that identity, you know, where's my work? And have some sense, I do have some sense that if I'm doing my work, then other beings are free to do theirs. Uh, there's a mysterious linkage there, you know, but uh, I, I trust in that. Could you comment on uh, equanimity? Yeah. Um, well, equanimity is it's one of the four Brahma Viharas, which you probably studied, and it's also one of the six paramitas, uh, the perfections. Uh, which are also bodhisattva practices. Uh, equanimity means patient acceptance. I think that it, it calls for patience. Uh, it means taking whatever comes to one calmly. Uh, it means finding a kind of balance. Uh, in Japanese culture, they have these uh, Daruma dolls, have you ever seen them? They're, they're sort of red and round. They're, they're actually uh, kind of homage to uh, Bodhidharma, uh, one of the first patrons of Zen. And there's like, you knock them over, and they come back to the center. You knock them over this way, they come back to the center. So equanimity is like a tree 
or a blade of grass. And this is what we, you know, when we're sitting, that's the way we are. That's what we're modeling. You know, our sitting is, it's upright. We're rooted on the ground or in the ground. Uh, and our head is reaching towards the, towards the heavens. And our bodies are soft and flexible. They're upright. Uh, but like a blade of grass, they're very flexible. So when we bend this way, you know, wind, uh, physical or emotional or verbal, you know, blows us this way. If we have equanimity, we slowly uh, regain our center. So one, I keep that image in my head a lot, that image of a, of a tree or a blade of grass, which is very upright, but totally flexible. And that's a way, if we're practicing equanimity, uh, that's the way we become in our lives. And when we encounter someone like that, uh, again, we, we feel at ease. Does that get to it somewhat? We have time for one more question. Yeah. Um, it's an expression of identity action. It's also a gift. It's also an offering. It's the aspect of identity action is that for a bodhisattva, when she sees that other beings are suffering, uh, she vows to come back and stick around and help them, even if that means continuation of her own suffering. So it's it's a deeply, deeply uh, unself-centered view. It's expression. It's expression of that of this kind of ultimate altruism, uh, and. Uh, you know, it's it's a model, it's a metaphor, uh, and we know people like this. You know, we know people whose work, you know, puts them in those uh, inconceivable hell realms that uh, that I mentioned, and they stay there. They they stay there. They work there. You know, they go home. They come back. They come back to this place that, for some of us, you know, we're not. We couldn't imagine doing that. Uh, so that's a it's a high aspiration. It's nine o'clock. I promised to end, and I thank you all very much. I'll, I'll be around out there. It's uh, there's more to talk about, uh, but thank you so much for coming and for inviting me.